What I do is inconsequential. Why I do what I do is I get to shorten people's journeys every day. What I love about our hospitality industry is that it's our mission to make people feel cared for while on their journeys. Together, we'll explore what hospitality means in the built environment, in business, and in our daily lives. I'm Dan Ryan, and this is Defining Hospitality. Today's guest started his career working in high-rise architecture, but quickly transformed into a hospitality wizard. He has an eye for decadent design. He's one of two humans I know and really appreciate from Tasmania. He is a partner at Dutch East Design. Ladies and gentlemen, Dieter Cartwright. Welcome, Dieter. Hi, Dan. How's it going? It's good. I really like your wizard beard. Okay, it's it's got a few more feet to go. Yeah, true, true. Um, that's really funny. A few more feet. I get that. Yes. Um, so I want to go back in time a little bit, Dieter. To I think when I first met you, it was with a previous guest on the show named David Kaplan from Death and Company. I believe the first time I met you. You were designing, you designed a bar that was underground somewhere down in the Battery of Manhattan. It was awesome. And then quickly thereafter, shortly thereafter, Hurricane Sandy happened and just washed the entire thing out. And that was like a real heartbreaker because I know how much hard work and love and blood, sweat and tears you put into that project. Um, but is that, is my memory correct? There, thereabouts, yeah, I think so. It was a funny time because we, I just went to the, um, sort of closing ceremony of another bar that we opened around the same time. So it was interesting. I was reflecting on the destruction of Demimond less than one year after it being completed. And yet just the other day, going to the closing party of pouring ribbons, which closed after 10 years, which was an interesting cap on that chapter. You don't normally celebrate the closing of one of your projects, but it seems like the right thing. Well, tell me about that because oftentimes when it's time to close, people stick their head in the sand or they just let it kind of silently disappear. And there's not a moment of celebration. There are times when it, there are, is celebration and that's very finite. So what was the, how did you guys decide to celebrate the closure? And like, what was that, that what was that like? That sounds incredible. Well, our old clients and friends at Pouring Ribbons uh, just had a good run. <laughs> and Lisa was up, you know, classic New York story. Lisa's mm. up. Do I want to raise, do I want to go with that? And um, I think, uh, I think their point of view was the, the market had changed. Uh, New York had just gone, you know, two years of pandemic could be a good time to close the chapter on that. Mm. It's interesting. I've always looked at um, leases as a liability, correct? You know, it's like, okay, we have this lease on the books. We have a commitment. We have to honor it. Um, but I, my thinking changed on that, specifically as it pertains to restaurants. When I read a book by Danny Meyer, um, I think it's called Setting the Table. And he talked mm -hmm. about when he would set up these really long-term leases for his uh for his restaurants, he would look at it as an asset because it allowed him to do all these other things and he didn't have to worry about it and he could redefine a neighborhood. And it's just an interesting way to look at something that most people see as a liability to others see as an asset. Did, did your client, um, 
look at it that way or was it just time to move on and try something else new? Uh, definitely the latter. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to speak for, for them. <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. Um, and then for, yes, it is. Um, for those of you also who don't know, I love, as you all know, I love connecting people. So Dieter has a special play, place in my heart uh, in the sense that I, of all the connections that I've ever made in my life, I think I'm most proud of connecting you with Lara because now you are not only business partners, but also life partners. And that, I don't know, I'm just very proud of that. And you guys are freaking amazing. And what you've gone on to build together is just incredible and to have some part in that introduction just makes me feel really like at peace with the world <laughs> that that makes you have a special place in our heart too dan of course that's uh couldn't be better from would you like to come and have some drinks to you know eight years on unbelievable unbelievable yeah. um well i'm so happy for you guys um it just doesn't happen that many times. Like, I think maybe I've introduced two people that have wound up getting married. Um, so you really hold a very special, you both hold a very special part place in my world. So thank, thank you. Thank you. I mean, two, I mean, you kind of hit two home runs there because we got married and we went into business together. So with <laughs> that's <not> too bad. <laughs> well, it's not too bad, but it's also rather, <laughs> it could be rather difficult. Like marriage is hard enough. And then business is also a whole different thing. So um, yeah, I, I commend you and I applaud you for all of the amazing things that you guys have done on your journey. Thank you. Having a third business partner helps balance things out because we get to each choose to uh, decide with someone else for change. Oh yeah. You have the tiebreaker. Yes. It's, it's the built-in tiebreaker. <laughs> uh, so I want to go back, like obviously born and raised in Tasmania. I don't know many people from there. Um, you start working in architecture, then you decided that you wanted to get into hospitality. Like how did that change go? Cause most people who are on an architectural path, it's very hard to change gears because they want to build these structures and monuments. How did you, what prompted you to change gears to go into designing restaurants, bars, hotels? It's, it's almost like. It's almost, it's hard to say which I was changing gears from and to, to be honest, because, okay, I wanted to be an architect since I was in single digits for sure. Um, and, you know, during the, the construction of my parents, the first house that my parents built, I would be running around after the builder with these little house plans that I'd drawn up saying, can you critique? Like I was literally seven. Um, but then... You know, at age 18, I like to say I squeezed a five-year architecture degree into 10 years because I was traveling the world and bartending, you know, in London and Spain and back in Sydney. And, and it, 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 bartending and running bars became this big distraction from finishing my degree and pursuing a, a, uh, a career as an architect. But it ended up being the other way. And then I, it was a matter of just finding a way to put design and many years in hospitality, working in hospitality together. And it just seemed automatic to 
be designing bars, restaurants, and hotels. It was kind of like the only thing that was right at the time. And and it's interesting too because I think of you know to be a bartender or a bar barman bar person. It's really, in many ways, the ultimate in delivering hospitality to others, right? Because you know sometimes you're just getting someone a drink, sometimes you're laughing with them, sometimes you're their psychologist, uh, listening to all their problems. Um, and I think you just get a really broad spectrum of just life and people. Um, what part of that, the interacting with people from behind the bar, specifically helped you change gears to design bars and hotels and restaurants? It, uh, I, I think, like I said, I don't know which came, you know, which, which cart or which horse came first, but it was the chicken that came first. Yes. Yeah. I put the chicken in front of the cart. I don't know. Um, the, uh, I mean, I was a designer through and through and, and, um, I think, uh, working in bars restaurants just helped draw out, um, you know, some, uh, that sense of hospitality, I suppose, and mm -hmm. really, um, using design as a way to create, uh, a place where people could gather and enjoy and experience, uh, but, but using, um, you know, allowing the, the two to, to feed off each other they're they're kind of uh it's a beautiful symbiosis between the two for me you know running bars and working behind the bar you just get to kind of see everything that's going on and you even have this barrier <laughs> you get to interact but you can always pull back behind the bar um and so just really enjoying how people interact and uh, uh seeing how you can foster that uh you also figure out how the whole thing should be working. So operationally mm. speaking, of course, it has to work. Um, but I suppose that element of just being able to create an environment for somebody. And as a designer, they have a strong appreciation for, okay, we, we can build the car, we can give you the keys, but you have to drive it. So we can only take you so far as a, as a designer. So we work very closely with operators to make sure they've got, you know, they've got something they could drive. And then in the introduction that I, aside from the wizard part, um, which I just felt compelled to write, you're not, I know you're not a wizard. Everyone, Dieter is not a wizard, although he may play one on TV. I did say something about decadent design. I feel like I got that from somewhere in, in some bio of you, decadent design. Um, how do you define decadent design and does, does any of that come from your bar experience? Oh, I think maybe, maybe, maybe decadence and wizardry, maybe misnomers in the descript description, <laughs> if I was to be perfectly honest, honest, maybe some of our work is feels very decadent, you know, it's sort of very indulgent and, and rich and actually Demi Mong, the project you mentioned while it was ill-fated, um, was absolutely to be that. Um, but it, in some of our other projects, um, actually right. you're totally right. I pulled that myself from my experience at Demimon decadent right. design and I totally forgot. Okay. Cause we well, actually, I want, I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit because for <laughs> those of you who don't know, this is like a really cool underground bar. Um, 
And then there were these kind of banquette booths that had these, for lack of a, I don't know the words to do it, but like a macrame rope kind of divide. It's not macrame. I'm not. But it was like this rope dividing screen, but it was actually, you had a Japanese woman who was skilled at the art of like bondage, tie yeah. these knots. It was so freaking awesome. And part of that story was decadent and awesome. But also I just remember that opening party was just like amazing. How did you pull all that together? That's, that is a, yeah. So we were inspired by Kimbaku, this Japanese form of rope bondage. Um, and so when we we're trying to divide the space, we thought it would be very interesting to see if we could use that technique to create screens that were permeable, that create, you know, divided up the space. And, you know, Dave was there, you know, we presented it and we got sign off. And then as with every, and that was a really good lesson, early lesson in design. If you are capable of cooking up a harebrained idea that your client loves, you better have the, the aptitude to, um, uh, to pull it off. And so, uh, through research, yeah, we were able to find Gadori. Um, uh, she came in, she was on site, uh, for a week while it was a construction site. She was, yeah. Tying, tying lots of knots. Yeah. I, that was, it was so awesome. And it, and like, and I think that's also just really important in all these conversations that I'm having mostly like of, of all the conversations I'm having m many on the design side and it's really about like, what story are you telling? How do you focus in on that and like, and effectively tell that. And for Demimon, like that was definitely a part of the story and it, it made it a very special place as short lived as it, as it was. Thank you, Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, it's, but that's, that's, that, that was a very layered story. You know, how we named it, it was almost a bit too layered from a, from a, from a branding point of view, there was, there were just probably too many stories that we're trying to sort of squish into one place. I'd say we're much more, uh, paired back now and, uh, yeah. So in a way it was almost too much, it was too complicated, but sometimes I find that the, when you, when you push the limits too far one way or the other, oftentimes they're very important parts of anyone's journey because it also helps them find their true path as well. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, from a, as an experience point of view, as a designer, yeah. uh, all of the above, yeah. I, I think as really a, as a designer, it was an incredible lesson as mm. uh, from, uh, from a process point of view and, and a fabrication point of view, implementation, you know, lots of good lessons there. Um, but yeah, you can backfire though, because yeah, maybe someone went to Demi Mondo like, oh, this is great. But then they wrote the Yelp review, which I love too much like a pirate ship because they saw ropes and, and just understood it was the rigging of a, of a ship. So you've got to really, you've really, yeah. You've got to but really, then you, yeah. then you could change the uniform of everyone working there and give them an eye patch. To totally have an eye patch. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Jax, but now we can start talking about uh, Johnny Depp, which we won't. Um, Jax Farrow. Um, okay, so through all of these, the processes and journeys and your your creative process and your evolution to where you are with Dutch East Design, um, as, you, as, as all three of you look 
in your past, as far as all of your, where you all came from and how you all came together at Dutch East and like where you're going right now. How do you think you've taken your three, as far as the, the partners, not included, like inc- you could also include snippets about everyone on your team as well, but like with the three of you coming together and bringing all of your past sensibilities, how do you think you marshaled all those together and created a new focus and a new path forward? Well, three strong personalities with uh, design sensibilities that at times align and at times do not align. Um, You need to, um, you need to see whose voice uh, in a way, I'm going to say loudest, but Who's what is reson- who's resonating? Whose point of view is resonating most? What what is uh what's bubbling to the surface? I guess you could say, and and you just create you just make space for that. And I think it might sound a little too organic, but um, uh, you you um, I think that's one way we take an approach. Uh, okay. We each and- have we each have design leadership over different projects. Um, which is a really good way to do it. Um, and yeah. So let's go to an example of where you guys, your, your opinions on what the outcome is divergent, right? And then you, you said that you want to, you want to find a way to like allow or allocate space for that. Okay. So you're, you you feel like you guys are going a different way. How do you bring it back and create that space? in so that it's um collaborative and that at the end you're you guys are all good with with the path that you're going how do you create that space and what do you do with it i guess is my question yeah you 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 have to hand it over you've got to let go and and acknowledge someone's direction and um uh and ownership that's it's this that's the way we look at it. I mean, we just opened Hotel Marcel, uh, like maybe not even four four weeks ago. Um, that is an example where one of us uh, led the overall cohesive design vision. That was Lara, and then the two other partners come in and support in our various expertise. Um, understand the uh the overall uh direction mm-hmm. own it buy into it and then be able to uh, collaborate to provide input um, and take ownership of smaller parts based on that kind of core direction that core set of principles that have been established so i, I so you, you're you're there enough <laughs> no but, actually uh, I, 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 I'm, that's one I'm, project I'm, that's a good example no but you beat me to the punch on hotel marcel because actually i wanted to get there at some point but let's just do it right now because for those of you who don't know hotel marcel it's a hilton curio in new haven it's not a hilton curio what is it tapestry a tapestry i'm sorry it's a it's a tapestry by hilton apologies um it's in new haven the name, the hotel, and where it is, I think, as important as all that is, 
the most important thing, I think, is that it's the first net zero hotel in North America or the world? No, no, in the U.S. In the U.S. Okay. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, I would like Dieter to explain what net zero means. And as you're explaining that, to me, I think from a sustainability perspective as like humanity, I think it's a great first step. But where do you see this going into the future? So to... It's got a couple of other accolades it's shooting for as well. It, technically, it's not net zero yet. It has to have one full year of operation. So you, you, you see it through all its seasons, see it perform in all, all, uh, all months of the year. Essentially, net zero means that it's, it's using less than it gives back in, in very simplistic terms. It's zeroing out. Um, it's also aiming to be a lead platinum hotel uh and uh shooting to be the first passive house certified hotel in the u.s and that's for that's sort of that's a u.s uh, sorry european certification that our client is uh is implementing in the building as well so there's there's sort of three there's a venn diagram of three overlapping uh set of parameters um, what's interesting about net zero though is it, you you're you're not actually required to be disconnected from fossil fuels. You can be net zero, but using fossil fuels. Uh, but in this case, we're completely disconnected from all fossil fuels. So uh, even the, uh, the commercial kitchen on premises for the restaurant functions on electricity alone, no gas. Really? So they're, the, they're kind of the three targets. That's one big aspect of the, of the, of the project, uh, but also uh, doing an adaptive reuse of a mid-century brutalist icon is, uh, it's also pretty awesome. I mean, it's a great builder. Yeah. I mean, the building as a, as an example of brutalism, like right off, it's kind of like close to the water near the freeway by the train station. It is like, it is this huge monolith and to, to see how that's been reimagined as a hotel is like completely mind blowing. And from all, I haven't been there yet. I will go soon, but it's like, it's from all the photos I've seen, all the press I've read about it. It's just, it's amazing. And it's when you're walking in, it's at, from what I'm seeing is totally not brutal in any, any way, shape or form. No, no. The building, it can be a little alienating. Um, yes, it's in the Ikea parking lots right next to the 95, I 95. Um, our, our goal was to reintroduce the public to brutalism, to show them that a, uh, this large concrete exoskeleton could actually house something very warm, inviting and human inside. It's a matter of opinion how, what you, how you regard the exterior. Um, you know, voted Connecticut's in this building. Uh, you know, um, I'm sure there are. I think it, I think it's beautiful. Um, I also have a, you know, close and long relationship with, with brutalism, uh, living in London for a while. Uh, but, um, we really show a soft underbelly to that by stepping inside, uh, engaging with some of the same principles, you know, truth of materials, like, like the, the cast concrete on the exterior, um, but creating something really inviting 
and human and not alienating, not highbrow and forcing some historic nostalgic agenda. It's just this, this is a, a beautiful place for people to, to socialize, to meet, uh, to stay a few nights, have a meal, hold an event. And then for all the people that say, and let's just use in hospitality, oh, net zero, it's not realistic or it's too hard or whatever objection they may have. How do you handle, like from your experience, how do you handle those objections, number one? And number two, what, how does this excite you about the future? Um, I mean, I acknowledge those objections because it is hard. Um, it's, it's especially difficult um, in an adaptive reuse because you've got to fit, uh, in some cases, complex building systems into uh, an existing building. Uh, but ultimately, if you just, and our client will say this too, um, if you just make the decision to disconnect from fossil fuels and find a way to generate your energy on site, um, it, it's, you know, if you make that decision or uh, set it as a target, um, perhaps you can achieve it, but don't, don't treat, I think each classification or qualification in sustainability is really important in its own right. Uh, I think they really work when you layer them up, take the lead, the passive house, um, net zero set. You know, once you layer these uh, qualifications up, that's when you start to get a building that's performing really well on, on a sustainability level. Um, so, to hear, okay, so to set the talk goal about why I was excited about the future, but um, oh no, we're we're no, we're gonna we're gonna get there in a second because okay. also just obviously vision is important, right? So you get to the point where you're like, okay, the objective is no fossil fuel, no, no fossil fuels. Like let's just do this and everything else will organize around that vision. Right. And then implementing that and all, all the difficulties, like, what do you think from the, the key results that you implemented, what do you feel, what moved the needle the most towards having that be off of fossil fuels and generating its own power? What, um, as a practical implement, as a, something to execute on. Yeah. So obviously I'm thinking like it has to do with the operations, the MEP of the building, like what, oh. like what, yeah. Like okay. what, what categories sure, 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 really sure. move the needle well, the most? I mean, on-site generation of your electricity. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole roof is covered in photovoltaics as are, uh, many of the car park canopies. So generating electricity on site, um, implementing the latest technology and in battery storage. Um, on top of that, you are also doing your very best to lower energy consumption. And that's done by creating a, a, a perfect seal of the building, you know, establishing a, a satisfactory temperature inside and then you know, managing heat gain and heat loss by having a, a very well insulated sealed building. Uh, on top of that, reducing energy consumption by using power of Ethernet, which is a technology that's not being deployed in uh, many hotels at the moment, but that power of an Ethernet, it's literally exactly as I describe it. So all the lighting in the building 
uh, is powered by our Ethernet cable at low voltage. So Ooh. there's no there's no line voltage uh, lights in the whole building. So ev every single light is connected via the Cat five, like a Cat five cable or whatever yep. Cat seven or whatever yep. the latest. Yeah, no way. Yep. So then, as a designer, that must have really changed your whole palette of all the things that you're used to working with. It's just like it's like the supply chain must have been very difficult to like figure out what's available and how to make that work. You you would think, but it it really wasn't that constricting. And so very, totally. I'm glad you asked. I'm so glad you asked this because this is this goes back to that question. Oh, these these standards are too hard to attain. We can't possibly do that. Um, did it narrow down our selection of custom fabricators for the lighting? Yeah, a little bit, but still there are plenty that we could choose from who had experience working with power booths and that on top of that, uh, one of our favorite vendors, rich, brilliant, willing already, already had all of their fixtures adapted to power booths. So that was easy. Um, and then from a design point of view, it actually gives you incredible flexibility. So if you imagine having to coordinate all your, uh, wide lighting with, uh, junction boxes, conduit, all that go, you have to worry about that anymore. So we could integrate, uh, lighting into furniture much more easily. If you can wow. imagine a, if you imagine a bedside lamp, uh, built into a headboard, for instance, instead of having to line that up with a junction box coordinate all of that with the electrician, uh, you're, you're simply running a cat fire behind it and that's a whole oh, wow. trade. So and that must save a lot of money because you're not, you don't need unionized, uh, electricians everywhere. It, it, it could save some money because you don't need that licensed professional doing the work. Uh, but I'd be curious if that ended up being washed after all, hmm. uh, I'll get back to you on that, but it just, the design flexibility is incredible. And those rich, brilliant, willing guys are amazing. Did I, do you know that my office used to be right next to theirs when I was down on Christie street? I thought you were about to tell me you leased them space because that, no, no, no. You've done that a few times. No, they, uh, actually it was on Christie street at 195 Christie street. I was, I forget what floor I was on, but my door was here and their door was there right when they were starting. I think they were mm -hmm. just out of Rhode Island school of design, the three of yep. them. And, uh, it's been so cool to see them and their, their meteoric rise as far as like all the things that they've done. And now they, they've just moved, I want to say upstate somewhere and mm -hmm. that they're doing their fabrication there and they have a showroom on 20th street. Did they, I don't know if they moved everything from Gowanus up upstate. Do you, you don't know, I'll have to get them on and talk to them. I miss those guys. Yeah. They're so fun. They're really awesome. Should. Yeah. Um, so go, so thinking about all these transformations and, and being surprised that it actually wasn't as hard as you thought it would be from a material selection perspective, um, and technology perspective. Um, one of the things that I've found as we are all talking about sustainability again is. I find that most people and most companies are loath to open themselves up to the rigors of whatever measurement system that they're, they're going by to like, see what the carbon footprint is or what the cradle to cradle, um, impact is over the life of a product. 
And I, I, just speaking from my experience, I think one of the things that I truly believe in is we might not like what we see at first because we're measuring, but you can't change anything without measuring first. So, and I, 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 I've said this a bunch of times, but like back in 2008, I became a lead accredited professional and it was really important. Supply change changed, but then it kind of just, people stopped talking about it for a while. And now with the rise of ESG investing on the debt and equity side, it's becoming important that we have a, a number and that we have some sort of a measurement. And while imperfect, it's a great start so that we can all see what the impact is and see where we where the low-hanging fruit is that we can make the most impact, which then will get me back to the question that I cut you off on a few minutes ago. It's like, so in going through this experience of building the first net zero hotel in the United States, what's exciting you the most about the future as far as what you've learned there and how you're sharing your knowledge with other people who may be asking? Well, having conversations like this is exciting and the property getting uh, uh, plenty of press and our client, uh, Bruce Becker, who's also the architect for the project, uh, having a new platform because it was his first hotel and he, he may not do others. Um, but I think he's, he's been opened up to a whole platform where his initiatives can actually be, uh, acknowledged and absorbed by uh, a whole industry, um, uh, hotels, which consume a massive amount of, uh, energy, of course, and not, not, not the most efficient just by definition of the, the turnover. Your clients basically had the outcome that they wanted. They, I want this to be the first net zero hotel. It be, basically became a laboratory for them, mm -hmm. right? And now, okay, so it, it's proven that it can be done. What are the barriers to this rolling out or how quickly do you see this rolling out and how, how can you, through the press and everything else that you're getting, spread the gospel, so to speak, of, of, of accelerating this? So let's talk to the, the barriers of any, 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 the barriers to any change are institutional practices, whether the institution is a field of design, a discipline of design, or an aspect of construction or manufacturing. So you're kind of, you're asking uh, maybe a whole industry to, to change how it does something, which as we know, can take a long time. Um, asking a mechanical engineer to do something completely differently asking a contractor to uh, do something new. Um, so that's, that's uh, they're the barriers, I think. Um, but once you, I think if you can gather the, the, the right people around you and uh, state your mission and um, uh, you, you can set out, you can achieve uh, what you set out to achieve. As an example, um, we attended a, a symposium at uh, Grace Farm recently, that which is in New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, which was um, which was on re reducing slavery, modern slavery in the construction and fabrication industry, in fashion and, and construction architecture. Uh, and furniture manufacturing and, um, and one con 
contractor who spoke at that symposium said when, when they kick off a project with this, uh, new agenda, rather than talk to all their usual subcontractors and say, okay, you have to account for all your materials. You have to tell me every single material came from such and such source and guarantee that there was no uh, slave labor. Okay. Um, which is very daunting for every run of the mill subcontractor. If you think of a, a, you know, three subcontractors, three electricians bidding on a project and they have to account for every piece of conduit and wire. So what that contractor they did, he, he just made each, uh, subcontractor on the job, um, kind of own one thing and say that track this one thing, please just follow, follow this through. And that was a way to set an achievable goal at the same time as getting them to buy in to a mission, uh, starting small, and maybe that can grow out of that. I'm actually super surprised that the word slavery would be used when, when discussing like material supply. I mean, I would think. I'm, I'm super surprised with that because I feel like m with most of the, or I mean, all the factories I've ever worked at, I don't know, you, everyone's paid a wage and you, I guess as you go further up, up the supply chain, who knows what you would find, but like, I'm just actually shocked that that would even be a thing to be discussed. Yeah. It's a real thing. This oh, shit. All the stuff that goes into your cell phone, you trace it back to a mine somewhere. Um, yeah, it's worth investigating. Uh, oh, those rare earth, rare earth metals and materials from yeah. Congo. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. I'm thinking more even... stuff made of, made of wood, like, which is mostly what I deal with. I just yeah. can't imagine. And I've gone through major, um, compliance, uh, like initiatives through, you know, doing work with Disney and all this, where they go so far up mm -hmm. your supply chain to like, yeah. they go to the forest, <laughs> like they go to the forest. <laughs> yeah. They go to your forests. They go to your, yep. your glue manufacturers. They go to your hinge manufacturers and they have to make sure that they're, I, that's great. I guess there's no children, which I guess is tantamount to slavery making stuff because could you imagine what would happen to Disney if some report came out that, Hey, there's kids making this furniture. Like that would be the bad worst optics. thing ever. Aside from the bad optics, it's just fucking horrible yes. to be, to, to, to think about in the first place. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, the good thing is that whether it's about, uh, let's just call it malpractice on any level. Um, right. there are, there are initiatives to, uh, to mitigate it. Um, my, you know, there are, there are, there are companies who make it their job to go up that supply chain. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mind click is a good example. Marriott's, uh, starting to mandate that you have mind click, um, uh, uh, follow the breadcrumbs on, on yep. your, uh, your, your spec package, basically, uh, mindful materials is another organization that, that uh, is following up on, uh, of labor practices so there are there are um, there are groups out there who are, who are making this uh easier for a designer or a client i i yes i well I, i'm a huge fan of mind click i've been through their process a couple of times and mm -hmm. it makes it easier for you 
the designer in the sense that they're they're vetting things. They're going up your supply chain. They they want documentation of every which way. But as a manufacturer, it's not easy. Like you, it's really a ton of work, and it's a ton of documentation, and it's a ton of reporting. But ultimately, it all comes down to transparency. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Many manufacturers are just you know they don't want to reveal sources or supplies or suppliers or whatever where they're getting things. But I think as we think about how can we really know where everything is from, everyone needs to do this. And while I said before, like we might not like what we see at first, it's a great, it's it's so necessary to that first step. Because again, if it can't be measured, it can't be changed. Yeah. Remember, you use the word betting, but in in many cases, they they are just reporting. Mm -hmm. My clicker just... Nobody's saying you can't do that. Just saying, Mm. if you do this, this is what it will cost you from a carbon footprint point of view. It's the recording that you're speaking of. That's the that's 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 the best place to start. And then what I also love about it is it's not like a binary red or green, right? It's hey, let's look at the whole life cycle and see because like we all can't be perfect, but if we look at everything in its totality as a manufacturer, but then as a project or as a portfolio of hotels or as a country, then we can really start to make change and see, see where, what levers we want to pull on to make the, uh, the biggest change. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a minefield to be honest. Yeah, yeah. but it's good. And it's, the only way to change is we, we yeah. have to, everyone has to be willing to take that first step. So going back to the question of this net zero for hotels, how do you see this rolling out like i'm sure with all the press you must be getting a ton of uh, interest from other clients that are like hey we want to explore doing making this hotel net zero like what are you seeing out there what's the chatter is is a wave coming um i don't know if it's a wave um i think i think around around net zero is the whole question about um uh electric electricity generation i think and that's a that's a massive global conversation uh uh as as i mean i i don't know if we should even go into that but um um i think that's that's a really big question about weighing fossil fuels against uh being able to generate electricity um as we're all taking um i mean if, if every car tomorrow switched to electric the whole country would have a meltdown basically. So we have to yeah. transition very slowly. We just don't have the infrastructure. Maybe it's with microgrids or, you know, don't, don't have a, a countrywide infrastructure. Don't have just a local infrastructure, but, but just somewhere in between. Um, well, I, I also think about, you know, if you if we look at the traditional fossil fuel companies, so the Exxon's, the mobiles, the British petrols, the, you know, all the Aramco, Saudi Aramco, really what they are, and I don't know if they really look at themselves this way, but they're energy companies, correct? Mm -hmm. So, okay, yes, the majority of their business is fossil fuels because it's the most easily distributed and harvested and delivered to everyone. But if you start, you mentioned the photovoltaic cells that are on top of Marcel and also on the parking garage. I heard a few years ago that the efficiency on photovoltaic cells is following Moore's law. And I don't know if that's still the case, but it basically what that means is the efficiency is doubling every 18 months, 
where if you think about, if you plot that out five or 10 years into the future, it's not too far away if, if, if that improvement still keeps going, that many of these companies really need to switch to being energy companies. It also draws into question like some nation states of what makes them so powerful or important in the world seeing like <laughs> once those fossil fuels go away, like yeah. what's the point? Yeah. Yeah, maybe we don't actually. So it's... <laughs> but it's, but it's, but it's, I mean, it's, it's heavy shit, but it's also, I think yeah. it gets closer to that, you know, Star Trek future where, you know, we, I think that with energy consumption, you know, it's also, I think you could plot human progression in alignment with whatever energy consumption is, right? So whether you're building atom smashers or, or nuclear power pants, plants or, spaceships or satellites none of that's possible without energy massive so, energy yeah and if we can get to a point where there's like unlimited energy i mean it just you know it's we've start walking into the world of star trek and i i'm really hopeful i know like things are really crazy in the world right now but i'm hopeful that that unlimited energy future is not too far away and i'm hoping that and again it's all these things where it's like Rain, waterfalls start with one drop of, of water, right? So it's like, how can this net zero hotel or all of the other initiatives that are happening or the, the Im, Im, improved efficiency in photovoltaic cells, how can that all be these single drops of water that are leading to this, to this waterfall? Well, I mean, go, let's look at just the, the choice not to build a new building and reuse an existing building. I mean, that alone is... Uh, is the first initiative made in this case myself that that uh probably made the most impact to be honest yeah because you, you can build uh, an extremely sustainable building if you build it from scratch um that may offset all the gains you just made in energy by uh by making it operate sustainably so that that may actually be where you you make your first uh significant impact Totally. Um, and I, I think about like when I started doing, before I started doing these podcasts, I was writing a lot of these articles on like design and our industry and, and it, it became quite laborious. But one of the articles I wrote was on adaptive reuse. Mm -hmm. And by all the metrics, that one had the most legs, like it got the most likes and the most readers and like it was thousands and thousands and thousands. And I feel like there is a need, there is a desire for that. And again, that is kind of a layup when you think about not tearing something down and using all the energies and materials to build something new. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just as an interior designer in New York, everything is an adaptive reuse. I mean, totally. As soon as you've done half a dozen bars or restaurants in Manhattan, you realize that you're, you're always, you're always uh, finding opportunities in what already exists mm -hmm. uh, and seeing the economy in that alone. Mm. Uh, you're also building on, hopefully, uh, the cultural and social uh, heritage or or uh, strength of an existing building sitting within a neighborhood. Maybe there's something, uh, not maybe, there's often uh, uh, huge benefits to uh, breathing new life back into a building. Um, and capitalizing on its strengths 
Mm. Uh, we've been lucky to have, this is our third uh, adaptive reuse in a historical building. Um, and we're just about to kick off another one. So it's great. It's uh, yeah. keep up, keep up the good work. So, as and that's super exciting to me that, you know, oftentimes the things that we can have the biggest impact are just sitting there already there right in front of us. We just can't see and reimagine how to use it. So that's really exciting about the future. Um, when I think about that exciting Star Trek future, if you will, like what's keeping you up at night right now as Dieter at, and Dutch East, like what's keeping you up right now? I mean, the, uh, Usually my anxiety. Yeah. Or what well, I, anxiety or like, what am what? I really excited? What, what am I so excited about that? I just can't go to sleep. Uh, no, I did yeah. that. That would be on the good, on the good side. Yeah. Like as, as you're looking and, and doing these really great adaptive reuses in hotel Marcel and net zero, like as you start, as you see this promise of a star Trek future, like what, what's giving you pause or concern about getting to that point? Uh, our ability as a, you know, as a culture or society to adapt mm. at the rate that's required. Yeah. Because with all the information and technology and everything, it's all changing so fast that maybe we're like the dinosaurs and we can't keep up. Yeah. Well, we're not adapting fast enough to, to the current needs, whether they're social or cultural needs or they're very practical needs about just our survivability. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's the biggest concern. Yeah. I mean, I always sardonically joke about, okay, so we're all talking about sustainability and moving the needle and making a difference, but are we as people sustainable? <laughs> that's the big thing. You know, I just pick out curtains for a living, Dan. I <laughs> well, but I, I do think that, I don't know, and I'm the eternal optimist, but I do feel like there is a desire for change and adapting and improving, but it's also, you know, you pick up the newspaper on any given day. It's also mm -hmm. kind of a downer here and there. Yeah. So, so getting away from the downer parts, um, aside from everyone's push into sustainability, the new adaptive reuses projects that you're working on, like what's exciting you most about the future? Um, I'm going to take the practical needs of sustainability as an automatic, uh, need that we, that we're going to fulfill. The thing that excites me most is, uh, breathing new life back into neighborhoods or um, moving the needle for to affect positive change, mm -hmm. whether it's just a building alone or yeah, a neighborhood. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm most excited about. Finding a, engaging in a new market, finding a new project and just falling in love with the best parts of it bringing those to life great and then yeah. that's awesome so if i think about 
everything that you've learned at Marcel, and then obviously you're not in an island. There's other people that can be inspired and learn and grow from that. Um, have you had any um, industry competitors, colleagues? Like, are you having a lot of sidebar conversations or panels or education where you're like helping shorten their journeys towards what your experience was? Yeah, we're talking much more seriously with brands now uh, because they are probably best equipped to affect change uh, because they can, to some degree, mandate uh, some practical changes that are that we need to make just by adopting a certain brand name. They may come with standards, uh, so that, that could influence uh, the sustainability of the building or our design. Yeah. So that they're they're the more interesting conversations we're having at the moment, and uh, speaking to more vendors who we discovered have a whole department focused on on advancing their product from a sustainability point of view. Like whole roles that I didn't know even know existed. So that they're, um, yeah, brands and vendors are where all those sidebars go. Sure. Not with the developers yet. Okay. Well, we'll have yeah. to have some of those um, sidebars because I got some exciting stuff to talk to you about mm -hmm. off, offline. Um, but I think the brands and educating the brands as far as and using the case study, like have you building out the case studies on Marcel and educating the brands, I think could bring about some very fast impact because, you know, you think about when they're communicating upward within their organization or even mm -hmm. downward to the architects, designers, and other consultants, uh, general contractors that are helping build their properties. Um, it's like a, a one to many, it's like a real megaphone, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, don't try to make a, you know, a, a series of small changes, you may be able to make a, you know, a larger change as a result. Um, the, you know, the, the consultants, there are a lot of barriers. And if you can just start, um, if you can make aspects of a project, uh, more accessible to a larger audience, you know, like the POE thing is a good example. You know, it's, it's definitely new territory for a lot of people. Uh, but if you just start to introduce people to the fundamentals of it, the advantages, and then you have to start bringing in consultants and, uh, contractors who know what they're doing, because you have to identify the opportunities to fail and then remove them. And, and that's how you can make that accessible. Yeah. And we also need rich, brilliant, willing to get on their soapboxes and tell everyone that you can actually power lights through cat five cable. Like I had no yeah. freaking idea. Yeah. Come on guys. Well, you know, there are other layers to it then. That's why I, I'm, that's I'm why just, I'm busting, <laughs> I'm busting your chops and their chops. I'm going to be, that's I'm cool. going to be texting them as soon as we hang up. Be like, I had no idea. This is amazing. Educate yeah. me. And they'll probably be like, we have 47 YouTube videos about this. Like, why yeah. aren't you watching this? I was like, Oh, I guess I'm not looking in the right place. That might be the case. Yeah. Mm. Um, so Dieter, going back to the 18 year old Dieter, uh, you're, you're going around, you're traveling, you're bartending. And then the Dieter of today that I'm speaking with, let's say you guys meet up somewhere 
let's put you in London. You bump into the 18 or 19 year old Dieter. What advice do you have for yourself? To give the 18 year old version. Yes. Maybe the wizard, this is the, the wizard beard is talking right now <laughs> to the 18 year old Dieter. What, 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 what guidance do you have for yourself? Oh, geez. I'm, it's almost asking me if I have regrets. Um, but I, I, um, uh, maybe phone out more often. <laughs> make, make mom and dad happy. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I think my parents would have appreciated that. Yeah. But, um, you know, T phone home. Yeah. Okay. I love that. So no regrets phone home, be a better, be a better son. Yeah. Family is everything. I love it. Um, so Dieter, um, as we're winding up, how can people connect with you and learn more about all the initiatives that you're up to? Uh, best way, just uh, hit up our website. Our email's right there. It's goodwork at dutcheastdesign.com. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Dieter, I want to say thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. I can't wait to learn more about Hotel Marcel and actually go yeah. there. I want to I no, go there. Should... I will be there soon. I would actually love to get in the car up with you because there's some really good food trucks like right around the corner. Yes, that there I are. Love. There's a whole street of them. Yeah. Yeah. And the so, hamburger was invented in New Haven. See, New Haven, as a new <laughs> nutmegger, which is someone from Connecticut, like, I don't know. Uh, they can claim the hamburger was invented there. They can claim they ha- that the New Haven pizza. is the best pizza. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think it has something to do with like a chip on our shoulders up in Connecticut about being in the shadow of New York City. But I don't know. Maybe. I thought the hamburger was from Hamburg, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> so I want to find I'm gonna go to that first hamburger and go talk to them. But yeah. Uh yeah. Joking joking aside, I want to say thank you for your time. Uh no, thanks for giving uh, me the opportunity. Appreciate yeah, it's been it. awesome. And and then whatever I can do, and we'll talk about it offline, but whatever I can do to help um get your learnings um from this whole net zero experience at Hotel Marcel out in front of brands or other people um i whatever i can do to help shorten that information transfer would be great i think it would help me feel like i'm making a difference in some kind of way and also more importantly than you although i do appreciate your time and i'm grateful and we will go to new haven soon um i want to thank our listeners because we keep growing every week and people keep tuning in and listening and So thank you to everyone. And if this has changed how you think about hospitality or design, it's all word of mouth. So please just pass it along. And, you know, we hope to impact someone else. So thank you, everyone. And we will see you next time.